Morning, Hope Church. I was organizing my notes here, saying, oh, that's kind of a nice little offertory song. And I look over, I'm like, wait a minute, it's the little guy playing. (laughs) Good job, good job. I do have a confession to make. Two weeks ago, we were playing, Ileana Christian was playing Hanover, and we had a big night that night. My team was playing for the conference championship, and then varsity went in a double overtime and a great win. So I'm home celebrating with Big Mac. And uh, I hear this strange crunching that I've never really heard that sound before. And it was our new puppy, and somehow she had gotten a hold of my glasses. So if I kind of look at the screen back there for my notes are here, and I'm kind of doing one of these, you'll, you'll know why. At first, I kind of thought like Ralphie did in the movie The Red Rider BB Gun, where he's like, yeah, maybe it's not so bad, it's pretty bad. <clears throat> so we'll do, our, we'll do our best today. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. What a strange title you picked today. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Isn't sacrifice a good thing? Didn't didn't God put together this book of Leviticus that was really, in a sense, how to do sacrifices, how to have a relationship with him? As these people are coming out of out of Egypt, they don't have an identity. And God says, here's this book that I'm going to give to you, these writings in the book of Leviticus, and here's how I want you to do things. Here's how I want you to worship. And I want you to do it this way. I want you to do it this way. So we'll explore this a little bit. But I think many of you in this room... You've all had experiences where you've probably instructed somebody, no, do it this way. This is the way I want it. I think for an example, just say there's the kid Luke, okay? Say he's eight years old, he finds his dad's golf clubs, and he goes to the park with a bunch of golf balls, and he starts whacking away. And a couple days later, he says, Dad, I've been practicing with your golf clubs but I really want to learn how to play this game. So dad takes him to the driving range, and what does Luke do? He grabs that golf club like a baseball bat, and he starts ripping it, and dad says, no, 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 you don't do it that way. you got to interlock your hands like this. But that feels weird. And, and dad, look it, I can hit it totally straight, and sometimes, dad, I can hit it farther than you. <coughs> I can hit it farther than you. Yeah, but you got to do it the right way. Or there's that time where maybe you're a softball coach and, or a baseball coach, and that batter is up, he's a lefty, and there's runners on second and third, and the coach gives the sign that he wants to have a little drag bunt. Let's squeeze that, let's squeeze that run from third in home. Let's, let's teach these guys how to play small ball. And what does that kid do? He decides to step into the batter's box and rip it. Rips a single. Two runs come in. In between innings, the coach says, I told you to lay down a bunt. Yeah, but I made it better, coach. I got two runs in. Plus, I upped my average. If I would have just done a little sacrifice, who knows what would have happened. I would have lost a little bit on my average. Now I got two runs in. I did it my way, and I did it better. I think about the times, sometimes when you coach basketball, Maybe you're winding the clock down. There's 45 seconds left, and the coach is yelling, pull it out, pull it out, pull it out. You're up by one. And then some kid wants to be the hero and jacks up a three and nails it. And you're kind of like, I wanted him to pull the ball out. Yeah, coach, I shot the three. I made it. But it's not what I wanted you to do. 
I wanted you to do it this way because there's experiences that you have to learn from. And I think we see that today in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15. So let's take a look here at 1 Samuel 15. That's right. We're going to look at this whole entire chapter today. Big long story. Now when I grew up at Lansing Christian, we'd have story time. We'd get our little carpet square. We would sit down during first grade, usually on Friday afternoon. So you guys don't have to sit in carpet squares, but, you, but just settle in for a little while as we look this story over. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. God's anointed is Saul. And boy, has he had his setbacks. Saul has had problems, but our God, we know our God is a God of second chances. Our God's a a God of third chances and fourth. And Saul has had every single one of those opportunities. And now Saul has another opportunity to get it right. That's right, to do it right and do it the right way. And here is Samuel. What is Samuel? Samuel is the voice of God. He's God's prophet. So when Samuel is speaking, It's as if God is speaking himself. So you better listen. And God says, Samuel, tell Saul, I want to punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So here are the children of Israel coming up from Egypt a few hundred years before. So often we think about the words of the psalmist or we think about words in our own heart where we're like, Lord, why do you let your enemies come after me? Why do you let this kind of evil take place? Aren't you going to do anything about this, Lord? And God does things in his time. So it's been a few generations. It's it's been a few generations now, and now God is going to take care of these Amalekites. See, when the children of Israel were coming up out of Egypt, the Amalekites were kind of dirty. They did a little end around and attacked Israel from behind. And God told Joshua, I want everybody in this promised land destroyed. I want everybody gone because I am building the special remnant. I can't have any of this sin around. And Amalekites were actually kind of a a synonym that, that they used throughout that time period for sin. Sure, there was a lot of different civilizations, but when you said the word Amalekite, that reflected sin. For the Israelites, if they wanted to talk about secularism, they referred to it as Egypt. When they wanted to talk about sin, nasty sin, Amalekite. Kind of like us today. If we see somebody who's kind of flashy, we might say, hey, Hollywood, because we know what that means. Or if somebody says, hey, how was that place you went on vacation? You're like, well, it was a little Vegas-like. So in other words, maybe it had some little moral questions to it. We understand these phrases. And so if we kind of jump back into the context of the Old Testament, to be an Amalekite or to talk about Amalekites was to be the most vile, vile sin. The Amalekites were known for raiding the southern portion of the nation of Israel. And what would they do? They were marauders. They would come in and especially steal children. They would steal children, force them into prostitution. They would steal children and they would sacrifice them to their God. They would steal children and force bestiality on them. 
Amalekites were about as vile as you could be. And what does God say? Verse 3, now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy. And the Hebrew word there is karam. Totally, totally get rid of. All that belongs to them. There's only a couple times this word is used in Scripture. Here, when God destroys creation and the flood, totally get rid of. Total means total. All that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now right now you might say, wow, Jeff, I really don't like this kind of God right here we're talking about. Can't we talk about the God of, you know, the New Testament a little bit? This God is the same God. You might look at your life and say, yeah, I'm different than I was 40 years ago. But you're probably not different than you were four minutes ago. And you're certainly not different than you were four-tenths of a second ago. And what is time? Time is a construct that God allows human beings to live in, in time and space. But for God, there is no concept of time. God is the same today as he was yesterday as he was a million years ago. And so the God of the New Testament who hates sin is no different than the God of the Old Testament here because this is just a flash in God's sovereignty. As we continue looking here, take a look at this map. Now, I wish I kind of had a little laser pointer, but you see where it says Edom in the very bottom right-hand corner of the map. Right next to it is the Amalekites. They were the ones who lived in that southern portion of Israel. And who did they, they really annoy more than anybody? The tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, they were really, really vile to the people of Judah. So as we continue with verse 4, So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. 200,000. That's nearly the size of the army of France today. 200,000. That's right. 200,000 people are going to give the the king of Israel loyalty. We're following you into battle, Saul. Where you lead, we'll follow. And Judah... Judah brought 10,000, 10,000 men that are ready for a little bit of payback. We know what the Amalekites have been doing to us. We are ready right now for a bunch of payback. Send us in. Saul, don't hold back. Let us go in. So Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Ah, there's the old king. There's the old king we knew, the guy that would slay thousands He still got it. He still got that strategy. We kind of hid in the ravine. We came out. We destroyed the Amalekites. You can almost just picture Saul. Yeah, I still got it. I still can construct the battle plan. We're almost getting ready here for, you know, March Madness. And you always see these old coaches that have been around for 30, 40 years. And the commentators love that, especially when those old coaches still can come up with a game plan that that young coach can't can't quite figure out. So here is Saul in his glory. Then he said to the Kenites, go away and leave the Amalekites so I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to the all of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. So now it's just Saul and the Amalekites. 
Verse 7, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. That would be like from about Chicago, Illinois, all the way down to Indy. Because, you know, this region is not that large. This region of Israel is only about the size of New Jersey. So the area from South Israel all the way to to the Egyptian border is going to be like from from Chicago to Indy. He took Agag. Oh, Agag. You know what Agag's name means? Agag's name means I have overcome. I have overcome. Let's put a little pin in that one because we're going to come back to it a little bit. The king of the Amalekites alive and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat of the calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Hmm. Saul, you didn't quite do what you were supposed to do. All means all. Totally means totally. I've been teaching 30 years. And it's interesting because when you hand out a test, you say, no talking during the entire test. And then as kids start to finish up, there's maybe seven, eight minutes left to go in class. And what happens? A little chitter-chatter. What part of no talking do you not understand? What part of total right now, Saul, did you not understand? Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret. In some translations it says, I'm grieved that I made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and actually in the original Hebrew he's troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel can't sleep. It's just tearing him apart, what Saul did. When we take a look at this, we're going to see something here that's going to be rather troubling. Not only is Saul not going to do what he's supposed to do, but then he thumps his chest about what he did do. So as we continue, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. Now, in the original language, he got up. And if we know where Samuel lived and where Saul was at the time, it wasn't like he met him that same day. This is going to be a couple days' journey for Samuel to finally meet up with Saul. So you can just picture the situation here. Samuel's just seething, waiting waiting until I get Saul in my presence. And then what happens? But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. And there he has set up a monument in his own honor, and then has turned down and gone down to Gilgal. Whoa! First off, Carmel and Gilgal were two very important areas there in, in Israel. Carmel was the place before the children of Israel came into, into that region. That was where the, the, these, these local people would worship to their God. And so when the Israelites come in, God says, no, I'm claiming this back for me. And this is where then Israel would worship, there at Carmel. They would do special sacrifices at Carmel. And let's actually fast forward a little bit into the future. We probably remember that story of Elijah going up against the prophets of Baal. That was at Carmel, El, 
Elohim, God's place. God reclaimed that place for himself. And what does, Sam, what does Samuel see here? Samuel finds out that Saul has claimed that place that God has claimed for himself. And what has he done? He set up his own trophy case there. Up on Carmel, Saul can thump his chest and say, look what I've done. So you've got to picture this. Samuel is on a kind of a, a goose chase here. Samuel goes down to Carmel, which is about going from here to Lafayette, only to find out that Saul has left Carmel and gone to Gilgal. Well, I know none of you in this room want to walk from here to Lafayette. And then find out that you've got to walk from Lafayette all the way to Valpo. But that's kind of the distance between Carmel and Gilgal. In America, we have some very, very unique places. Many of you have visited them. You go to Arlington Cemetery, and there's a special reverence, and there's a special thing that we do as Americans when we visit Arlington. You go to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home. There's special connections to what happened in history there at Mount Vernon. There are special connections in Israel's history to Carmel and Gilgal. What happened at Gilgal? That was the place where the Israelites came across the Jordan River and established their first camp in their new land. And it was there that Joshua was told, wipe out everybody. Joshua didn't get the job done. Here is Saul at Gilgal, thumping his chest. I got done what Joshua couldn't get done. I got rid of the sin that Joshua couldn't get done. I'm God's anointed. You can just see the boastfulness here. What, is, what does Saul do? He defiles Carmel with his own arrogance, and he defiles Gilgal with his own arrogance. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you! I've carried out the Lord's instructions! I think you've had it in your own lives where you've seen maybe your children come through the door and just the look on your face at them and they start all of a sudden rewinding. Got to come up with a story, got to come up with a couple quick, quick words before mom starts laying into me. Saul does the same thing. As we continue with verse 14. But Samuel said, what's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? You can almost feel the sarcasm. You've done what you were supposed to do? Then what is this I hear? I hear a lot of bleeding of sheep. What's the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. You know, when we're confronted with our own sin, we become two occupations. We become bricklayers and we become excavators. Because we build walls and we dig our heels in. And right now, Saul is going to start digging his heels in and start building a wall. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Oh, the soldiers. There are times in the Old Testament where God is angry with the people of Israel. He's not angry with Moses. He's angry with the people. He's not angry with Aaron. He's angry with the people. But here, God's angry with the one who is supposed to be the leader. 
And somehow, somehow Saul, in building this wall and digging his heels in, is going to somehow try to pass the buck onto his soldiers as if he has no control over the soldiers. Excuse me, he just led them to a big victory. 200,000 of them came out to serve him. Saul, they're in your back pocket. You don't have to be afraid of them. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Oh, you did. You did. You know what, you know what happens here? Every year, the people of God were supposed to make atonement sacrifices. Take a pure animal, sacrifice it, have it sacrificed for sin, for the sin of that family. What does Saul say? Hey, guys. Use these animals. And it's just not a couple. Think about it. He's got 200,000 200, men there. Of course, there's going to be a lot of them that die in the battle, but he's going to have 100 plus thousand guys. Think about how many good animals are all around that they were supposed to destroy. And you know what? Part of the old biblical mandate was this too. You could, if you were poor, hold on to a portion of that meat that's right. A lot of the Israelites didn't get meat all that often. So when it comes time to give your yearly sacrifice, you sacrifice and you get a little meat too. So what does Saul say? Hey, go ahead, guys. Have a little bit of a have a little bit of dinner on God. And you know what? These animals are in pretty good shape. God will be happy with these sacrifices too. As we look at verse 16, stop! How many times, maybe, for some of you in this room, have you been arguing with your teenage kid over the years, and the argument's going back and forth and back and forth, and then finally, just stop, stop, stop your talking. Here is Saul. He keeps it up. He keeps arguing with the voice of God, Samuel. And finally, Samuel's had enough. Stop. Be quiet now. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul says. Go ahead, tell me then. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You had a special job to do. Continuing on. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? You would think that Saul would say, okay, okay, I'm sorry. But what does Saul do? He keeps up the argument. As we continue. But I did uh, obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. You know what he did? Think about this. Back in those days, when you defeated another enemy, you'd put a noose around their king. You'd parade them through the encampment. Men would spit on them, hurl insults. What does, what does Saul do? He brings Agag down from nearly the border of Egypt, all the way up to Carmel, all the way up to Gilgal, the whole entire way, let's just keep on showing him off as a trophy. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel, 
here's what I did. I defeated the Amalekites, I got their king, and I made God's directions even better. I hit the three-pointer when all he wanted me to do was hold the ball. I hit that base hit when all he wanted me to do was lay down a bunt. I made it better. As we continue, no, Saul, you didn't. Don't think for one moment that you are giving God's cake and saying, and now you can eat it too, like you're somehow somebody special. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Doing it the right way is better than the sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Whoa, is this, is this packed full of stuff here. First off, for rebellion is like the sin of divination. Many of you have learned John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Every cadet knows that, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey. And what does Samuel say here? If you don't obey God, it's like worshiping Satan. It's like divination. You don't obey God, you're no better than the Amalekites. You're just as bad as the Amalekites who worshiped all kinds of gods. And to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants our heart. Think about us. Think about our sacrifices. Our sacrifice of praise. Hey, everybody, sit around the table. Let's quick pray before we eat. Let's quick pray before we eat. You think God likes that sacrifice where we just lay out that quick prayer before we eat? Hey, you know what? Um, yeah, I, I got to run off to work. It's about 10 minutes. I'll quick sit down and I'll quick look at my phone app and find the daily devotional so I can quick get that little sacrifice of praise done. Or when church starts, I got to take out my phone and get those last couple swipes in. As the song's going on, yeah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. You think God wants that praise out of your lips at that moment? That is nothing then. Poor obedience, and it is not the sacrifice of praise that God wants. Better off you just didn't even do it. This word obey is interesting. It's the word that we use in the English language. There's no word for this in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the word that is used, I think, is far more enriching, far more deep. The word here in the in the original language is the following. It is these attributes. Next slide, please. It means to hear. Did you hear what I had to say? Did you focus on what I had to say? Did you listen and therefore understand it? Because one thing to hear, but do you get it? Do you understand it? Yes. And then finally respond. To obey is better than sacrifice. Because when that happens, next slide, please. We realize that Saul didn't do the right thing, didn't do it the right way, didn't do it at the right time, and didn't do it with the right heart or motive. And so as we continue out the passage, let's continue to find out what happens next. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. 
Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Kind of a hollow apology. I violate the Lord's commands and your instructions. I was afraid of the men. Guess what? He's not really sorry. What is he doing here? He's still deflecting. He's still deflecting all this blame on the men. And so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Let me still save some face in front of the men. You know what? Nobody likes to put it this way. Think about when you were a kid and maybe you did something wrong and your mom or dad are scolding you in front of your best friend and it's kind of embarrassing. Here is Saul being scolded in front of the men by the Lord's prophet. You know what? You've got to help me save a little face here. Please, Samuel, help me save some face. Next slide. But Samuel said to him, I'll not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. We look at this word rejected in our NIV Bibles, and we say, okay, rejected, I get rid of it. You know, I, I really don't want the beans for dinner, so I kind of push it off to the side. The Hebrew word is here so much more. When you think about when you vomit or expel something from your, your human body, you've rejected it. That's the word that's being used here in Hebrew. You're rejecting it. The Lord has just spit you out of his mouth. He's done with you. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe, the kanaf. At the bottom of a Hebrew man's robe were those tassels that represented the prayers and the future Messiah. And that sometimes was also referred to as the hem, the kanaf. So you can almost picture Saul here. Samuel turns his back and Saul dives and grabs and as he grabs, he turns and he tears it. In other words, get back here. Where are you going? And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you, David. There's only one other time in scripture where we hear of a person grabbing the hem that's the woman who was bleeding for nearly 12 years. Out of faith, what does she do? She grabs the kanaf. She grabs the hem of Jesus and with faith says, please heal me. What does Saul do? Saul says, this is what I demand. This is my entitlement. Get back here, Samuel. And Samuel says, it's torn from you. Next slide. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Now the way the Old Testament is written, okay, he's going to go back and worship. He's going to allow you to save a little face. But before that, Samuel has some unfinished business. Next slide. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites. So in they bring Agag, the man whose name means I have overcome. You can just picture Agag. Agag is in a position where he's like, Whew, they'll probably ransom me now. I'll go back to my area and maybe start over again. I, I think I kind of got past the hard part. And when Saul did 
kill the Amalekites. There were Amalekites that fled away. He didn't quite keep up the pursuit as he was supposed to. He killed and totally destroyed all the enemies that he actually came in contact with. Not all the enemies. But here comes Agag in chains. And he thought, and Agag says, thinks, surely the bitterness of death is past. I have overcome because that's who I am. When I was, in a sense, brought before our idol gods and my parents gave me a name, they gave me a name, I shall overcome and I'm living up to my name. The sin is going to overcome. But Samuel said, as the sword has made women childless, remember what the Amalekites did to children, so will your mother be childless among women. And then, next slide, and Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord put to death Agag. You know what? It's more than just put to death. You've got to picture the scene here. In front of all the men, here is Agag. And now God has to say, Samuel, or Samuel has to say, Saul, give me your sword. Give me that sword again. God, God has to finish what you couldn't finish. And what does he do? He starts hacking Agag to death. King James Version says, hewn, hewn. I don't know if you've ever been to like a pioneer village where they're like cutting logs to build a log cabin. When you hewn, you, you hack and hack and hack and hack. I'm sorry, but the NIV here kind of sanitizes it. It just says, put to death. The interesting thing is, throughout the entire 66 books of the Bible, we see that word death, 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 over and over and over again. But here is a unique kind of death. Here, this death is, please, next slide, is vishasif. It's the only time in all of Scripture this death is used. A couple weeks ago, I was with a, a Jewish scribe, and he and I were doing some research on this passage. My wife took a little picture, and you can see us there, and he, he says, this is so unique. He goes, yeah, the NIV is sanitizing it. He says, because visashef means just to hack like nothing else. You can almost picture the men, they can't take how horrible, horrible this death of Agag looks as Samuel just keeps on hacking and hacking. Well, Jeff, that's a nice bedtime story. Thanks for that. Thank you. Please, next slide. This sin, the Amalekites who represent sin, keep coming back to haunt Israel. A couple hundred years in the future, the Israeli nation there in Babylon is almost going to have complete genocide. And maybe you remember the story of Esther. Esther steps in. She confronts the man that wants to put all the Jews to death. His name is Haman. Haman was an Amalekite. Saul didn't finish the job, and the sin keeps, keeps coming after God's people. Next slide. So what about us? 
Everything in this Old Testament is a spiritual reality in the New Testament. Are we any different than Saul? Don't we compromise our sin? But God, I made this kind of better for you. I'm going to make this better for you. I'm going to buy these lottery tickets because if I win, I'm going to use this for the kingdom and this will be better for you. We rationalize, we argue, we cling to God and say, get back here, we're entitled to this. We demand and in the end, we can't do the job because we don't obey what our eyes see and our ears hear and our heart feels and our mind thinks and where our feet walk, we just can't do the job. And here we are in this time of Lent. And we know there's one person who does do the job. And that one person who does do the job is the one who's going to become the Amalekite for us. That's Jesus Christ. Christ, as it says in Scripture, becomes sin. And what happens to him on the cross? What happens to him on the cross? Visha safe. God the Father will throw and hack and hack almighty, holy, horrible damnation, one blow after another, after another, after another on his son. Why? Because we can't do the job. Jesus becomes what we're, what we are. And what, is, what does Jesus do on that cross? He cries out, why have you turned from me? Why have you torn yourself from me? Where are you, God? Why have you rejected me? He's rejected Jesus because we're supposed to be a gag. We're supposed to be the one that's hacked and we're not. And thanks be to God that we're not. Two weeks ago, I believe, we started Lent. And in Lent, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And I'm sure you did as well. In fact, somebody told me that you did do that. And when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pass these wonderful plates, these beautiful plates of bread and juice or wine. And you know what? If God really wanted us to, stay, to understand just one trillionth of what it meant to be hacked apart there on that cross, to be that sin, he would have had those plates spread around the room just dripping full of blood and flesh. That's right. The Old Testament people, they never cleaned the altar. The altar always had blood and flesh dripping from it as a constant reminder. But God doesn't do that for us. What does God do for us? He says, you don't have to relive and look this sacrifice in the face over and over. It's done. Now what you get to do, now what you get to do is celebrate what I did. So that Lord's Supper that you're going to partake of on Good Friday, I'm sure, or at least on Easter weekend, you don't have to see a sacrifice. You get to see a celebration. A celebration of true obedience. That's right a true obedient person who was the sacrifice. And that's why, when it comes down to it, he deserves all blessing and honor. Because of what he did, the kingdom is not torn from us. Do you see all these wonderful ingredients in this Old Testament story? The 
kingdom is not torn from us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you went to the cross saying, Not my will, but thy will. You were obedient unto death, in which you were hacked and hewn in the worst way we could ever, ever imagine, and if not more. Lord, you did this out of obedience to give to us the perfect sacrifice. And because of that, all blessing and honor and praise belong to you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.